Well, good morning, church. Uh, just before we begin, this uh, book is a commentary on the book of Revelation by William Hendrickson. It's called More Than Conquerors, and I just want to let you know that there are two copies of this up in the library. We just have finished going through the book of Revelation, and if some of you have questions or you wanted to maybe learn more about the approach that we had when we went through the book, uh, this would be uh, the best place to start. So William Hendrickson, More Than Conquerors, An Interpretation of the Book of Revelation. I believe there are two copies up in the library. And if you don't know where the library is, it's in the older uh, children's Sunday school room. You go to the back, and in the little alcove in the corner, you'll find some shelves with some books on it and instructions on how to sign out the books. So uh, I couldn't recommend this to you more if you're interested in learning more about the Book of Revelation. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, Please open them up to our passage this morning. We'll be in a number of passages, but we're going to start in the book of Romans. It's not Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32. It's Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And in this passage, we have one of the pillars of Christianity. In this passage, we have a doctrine expounded that is, has been called the article on which the church stands or falls. And it's true. Without this doctrine that we're going to approach this morning, without this, you cannot have a church or even have a Christian. Without this doctrine, there is no gospel, there is no good news, and there is no Redemption. You, you remove this doctrine, alter it, deny it, and you lose Christianity. You lose the salvation of the lost. You lose all confidence in the work of Christ and all confidence of your standing before God. That's if you remove it. And if you just confuse this doctrine or are unclear about it, it will create untold hindrances and difficulties in your Christian walk. This is that important. You say, well, what is it? What, what truth is, is, uh, is this crucial to my Christian faith? It is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. And we could spend you know, a couple of months on this, but I'll, I'll do my best to be succinct. Romans 1.17 For in it, the Gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would help us to understand this doctrine this morning from Your Word. Lord, I know myself, I heard it explained so many times, and still it's it seems I'm just beginning to understand what it means. And I pray for everyone here this morning hearing me that it wouldn't take so long for them, but that they would be able to know what it means that they are justified by faith alone. Lord, help them. Help all of us to understand so that our faith, our confidence would be strengthened our forgiveness would be certain. Our consciences would be clear. 
And we would thrive, we would excel and launch like rockets in our pursuit of You and of holiness and our confidence, Lord, of clinging and holding fast to Christ. Lord, help us this morning. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. Well, this was the controversy of the 16th century Protestant Reformation. How is a man right before God? It was Martin Luther I quoted earlier who said, justification by faith alone is the article on which the church stands or falls. And what he meant by that was if you get this doctrine wrong, you will eventually cease to have a Christian church. You will have something. And it will have all of the trappings, the decorations of Christianity. It will have the forms, and it will have things like prayers, and the language will be there, and maybe the same books will be there, but it will not be the way instituted by God and fulfilled in His Son, Jesus Christ. It will not be Christianity. Because this doctrine is so crucial, it should come then as no surprise that in every generation, the doctrine of justification by faith alone has always, and I mean always, come under attack. I mean, just my own lifetime, our lifetime. You know, I, I've followed Mark with the Lord for 20 years, and in that time I have seen at least three major separate attacks on justification by faith alone. And it might not be in the, you know, in the forefront here in our church, but the church universal is dealing with it on all sides all the time. And with the, you know, the, the, the expanse of the internet and so much teaching and books available, it's only a matter of time before these new ideas or ideas that are long dead resurrected make it into your thinking. You're, you're going to come across these things and you're going to have to know, what, what do I think about what I'm seeing? You know, I remember, just for example, a friend of mine, a wonderful brother in Christ, and he was telling me how he found hope. You know, while he was reading Charles Finney in Bible College, he said that just everything seemed dead, and, and I was reading Finney, and it just seemed to be alive. And I told him then that uh, in my estimation, Charles Finney was a heretic who denied the Gospel and led people away from Christ, not towards Him. My friend wasn't so sure. And, and then in a, you know, in a great providential irony, he handed me a book of Finney's from his shelf, walked over to his bookshelf, takes it off, hands it to me, says, open it up anywhere, put your finger on the page, read what it says, and tell me if it's not life-giving or helpful. And so I did. I opened it up, put my finger down on the page, looked down, and read... Anyone who preaches justification by faith alone surely preaches another gospel. Now, needless to say, the conversation, uh, it, it came to an awkward and immediate end. Charles Finney was not a Christian. He was a false teacher who denied a central doctrine of Christianity. Or just online the other day, uh, I saw a pastor saying that the gospel that will transform the black community is a gospel of justification by faith and social justice, especially the giving of money to activist organizations. So how are you justified? You need faith. You also need to give money to these organizations. And even though that was just a few days ago, 
it's nothing new. It's, it's not actually unlike the Roman Catholic teaching. Justification is by faith and works. You know, some people think that the Roman Catholic Church teaches justification by works. Well, that's not true. You, you need to have faith. They teach justification by faith. Faith is non-negotiable. The problem is with that word alone. And so you need works too. In fact, it's, it's faith that enables you to do meritorious works, good works, and so be justified. That's the, the Roman Catholic schema. Yes, you need faith. You need the infusion of grace received in baptism. And then it's up to you to do good works and justify yourself. And who determines what those justifying works are? The Pope. And so in the 16th century, when the Pope needed money to build St. Peter's, he determined that if you needed more works for justification but just didn't have the time to do them, you could buy them. You could buy some righteousness and help fund the building of St. Peter's Basilica. It was justification by faith and the purchasing of what were called indulgences. All this to say, whenever you hear the word justification by faith and, pay very close attention because there's probably going to be trouble. Justification by faith and anything else is not the gospel. But the greater difficulty and the, the, the danger really is that opponents to justification by faith alone are rarely so obvious in that opposition. Take the Puritan Richard Baxter, for example. No doubt a believer. However, looking around at, in his age, seeing the uh, loose living of professing Christians, he decided the cause of this was justification by faith alone, and he had a redefinition then of what it would meant. And he believed that what Christ accomplished was not justification for the Christian, but by Jesus perfect fulfillment of the law for all who believed in Him. So Jesus justified, uh, fulfilled the law for all who believed. God now could put forward another standard which was lower and by keeping this new and lower standard we could achieve final justification. And so far as, law, uh, so far as the law of God was concerned, well, that was kept by Christ. We were justified in Christ in that so that now a lower standard could be achieved. This doctrine uh, greatly influenced John Wesley, who no doubt believed it, but uh, aware of its great controversy, he, he concealed that affirmation behind a, a veil of many words. He was vague and unhelpful whenever confronted by justification by faith alone. And he would say he believed it. If you were to ask John Wesley, do you believe in justification by faith alone? He would say, yes, absolutely. And then define it in a way that was very unclear. Now, this is just a historical controversy. This is not, you know, I didn't go digging into Wesley's life and pull this up somewhere. This was front page, uh, front page stuff. He would define justification in a way that was not so clear. For example, he would say, yes, I believe in justification by faith alone. We're, we're justified by faith alone, working in love. What does that mean? We're justified by faith alone. That, that's an addition. Working in love. Define that, Wes. And he, and he wouldn't. Or he would affirm justification by faith alone and then rebuke someone for saying, 
justification by faith alone means we are trusting only in the merits of Christ. Well, if justification by faith alone is not trusting only in the merits of Christ, that's not justification by faith alone. And so he, he would affirm it in word, but like so many, he, he redefined those words to his own liking. And I'm not saying that Wesley was not a believer. Certainly seems to be. But his bad theology and the vagueness of it made those who came after him susceptible to handling this great doctrine even more loosely. And they did. And there's N.T. Wright and the New Perspective on Paul, Auburn Avenue, Federal Vision, and others. And, and though many of these teachers, they believe themselves, uh, they may themselves be believers. Their theology has lethal flaws. So, whenever you hear somebody and they're being pressed on justification by faith alone, and, and they always respond vaguely with, Lots of words and qualifications. You, you hear this kind of evasive language. If history teaches me anything, it's that this kind of response to justification by faith alone, it is a red flag. At the very least, it's, it's a warning. Right? If the doctrine is obscured, if the historic affirmation is not readily and unreservedly confirmed, at the very least, it's reason for caution. All that to say, when, whenever you see people using many words to be evasive and they, and they hesitate to give clear answers about this doctrine, that ought to alert you to proceed with caution. We need to be clear on the just, uh, doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now that's, that's the alone part. Right? Faith plus nothing. So what is faith? And I don't mean the evidence of things hoped for. I mean, when we say we are justified by faith alone, what is that faith we are talking about? And the reason to start with faith and not justification is because faith comes before. We are justified by faith. Faith is the means of justification. It's the response to the call of God. That's what, where, where it comes from. It is a response to the call of God. Romans 10.14 how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe or have faith in Him of whom they have not heard? So, called, believed. Faith is a response to the Gospel message. When a man or a woman hears, they believe what they hear. Now, now you can go another step back and say, well, the reason they believe, the reason they have faith is because God has regenerated them and by His effectual calling has made them born again. And this is true. What does that mean? Listen, when the Gospel is preached, God's Spirit is at work. And the preacher is calling everybody to come. He's casting a broad net. Come to Christ. He is telling everybody who has ears to hear Him, come to Christ. But there's another call happening. The Spirit is effectively or effectually calling some of them. The call of the preacher can be ignored, but the call of the Spirit cannot be ignored. It is always effective. This is why you can have a whole crowd of people hear the exact same message and only a handful believe. 
They were all called to believe. They all heard the message. But why did so many walk away? Matthew 22.14 Many are called, but few are chosen. And those who are chosen, they are born again. They are made new creatures. They are not what they once were. This is called in theology, regeneration. And it's a work of God's Spirit that happens totally independent of you. And it happens to everyone who believes. What's the biblical witness about us in our sin? We are dead in trespasses of sin, in sins, but God has made you alive. So you were dead, but God made you alive. In Ezekiel, you had a heart of stone, unresponsive, right? It's like a statue. You go up and you pinch a statue, what's going to happen? You're going to hurt your fingers. God gave you a heart of flesh, a heart that was alive and could respond to Him. You go up and you pinch a person right there in the back of the arm, they're going to feel it. They're not stone, they can respond. He takes that portion of you that is hostile towards Him and strikes it a lethal blow so that that spirit of yours that languished lifeless is made alive. And now you can see the kingdom. And now spiritual realities are perceptible to you because you have been made spiritually alive. This happens in an instant. And it is totally and completely the work of God alone. You have nothing to do with it. John 1 and John 3, it says you have as much to do with your new birth as you did with your first. You didn't get to say where you would be born. You didn't get to say when you would be born or even if you would be born. God did. I mean, your parents were the means, but God decided that you would be born physically and He didn't consult you at all in this. I mean, this is an indisputable fact. Right? How many of you, you know, bargained with God about when you would be born, where you would be born, how you would be born, if you would be born? It's no different when those who are born again. They're born of the Spirit. Then the Holy Spirit takes up residence in them, and the effect of this change is faith. It's the effect of this change. God calls, regenerated, and we have faith. But listen, this faith is not an act of God. I'll say that again, just to be clear. The faith that saves is not an act of God. He does not have faith for you, and it's not God's faith. It's a gift. You couldn't have it if God didn't enable it, but it is you, the sinner, who has to have faith. It's God's grace that you can believe, but it's your faith, and it must be your faith that justifies. And it's a reminder to us that God really doesn't deal with us like machines. He deals with us as human beings. And our responsibility as human beings is to exercise faith in Christ and His Gospel. And it's your faith alone that justifies. No one can have faith for you. And the Lord doesn't uh, implant faith into you. It is yours that justifies. And there are three things that, three distinguishing elements of saving faith. Now, this could be a sermon on its own. but First, there is knowledge of Christ and what He has done. There are facts about the Gospel and about Christ you have to know. I mean, how can you believe what you don't know or have never heard? So you have to have the facts, or otherwise what belief could you have in them? 
You can't believe what you don't know. And, and this doesn't have to be much. A child can understand it. You don't need to know the order of salvation in, uh, in every detail and, and every intimate detail of redemption. It can be as simple as, Jesus died for me. Jesus died for the sins of His people. You don't have to know much, but you do have to know something. There is content to the gospel message. Right? I, it's not, uh, it's not a chair that is your savior. That would be bad content. It's Jesus Christ who is the savior. But it's not enough just to know it. You must also believe it to be true. And that's the second element of saving faith. Assent or conviction. Now, you don't have to know much, but you do have to believe what you know. What do you mean? Well, uh, take the virgin birth as an example. Christ born of a virgin. It is possible for a person to know the information of the virgin birth. Right? Jesus born of a virgin. That's what the Christian believes. So they can understand it rightly, and then precisely because they understand it, reject it. Right? Yes, I understand what you're saying. I just don't believe it. You ever had a conversation like that? I understand. I know what you're telling me. I know the gospel. I don't believe it. There's no conviction. But saving faith, that, that is the faith, the faith that justifies. It gives assent to whatever gospel knowledge it has. It hears and agrees with the truthfulness of it. It agrees that Christ is who He claimed to be and He is perfectly able to save me from all my sin and misery. But knowledge and assent or conviction are not enough. You probably know people like this. They agree with the information. They say, yes, I believe it. Jesus is the Savior. And you know them well enough that when you look at their life, there is no indication whatsoever that they believe anything that they say. They're not Christians. And in fact, the demons. Who were the first, who were the very first in, uh, in Israel to acknowledge Christ? It was the demons. They had the information and they believed it. Right? You are the Lord, Son of the living God cried one of the demon-possessed men. So there's a third element of saving faith. Trust. You're trusting in Christ. That's the one thing the devil and no demon would ever do. Put their trust in Christ. But you've stopped relying on yourself. You've stopped relying on your good works, your upbringing, or anything else, and have put your hope entirely in Jesus Christ. It is faith in him. Now listen, because a lot of people get this point wrong or they have trouble with it. It is not faith in your ability to exercise faith. That would be faith in your own faith. And you see this in action all the time. Ask someone, how do you know that you're saved? And what do they do? Well, I know I believe because I really believe. Or I know I'm saved because I was sincere. And you've heard this before. How do you know you're a believer? Well, I was really sincere. Do you see the problem with that? What are they trusting in for their salvation? They're trusting in their own sincerity. They're trusting in their own faith. 
I mean, imagine this person standing before the Lord and the Lord asks, why should I let you into my heaven? And he says, well, I really had faith in the sincerity of my own faith. Jesus isn't even in there. You know, if you gave that answer, what would be the object of your faith? What would be the thing that you're hoping in? It would be you. How different is it to say, I had faith in the promises and finished work of your Son, Jesus Christ? Well, there is a faith that saves. It's trusting in Christ. It is faith in Christ. I heard an example before describing this. I was of a tightrope walker walking across Niagara Falls, and I'm sure some of you have heard this before, but... It was quite a few years ago, he went across and he asked the crowd, do you think that I can walk across this tightrope? And they're skeptical. You know, they know what he's saying, but they're not convinced. And so off he goes, goes one side, comes back. And this time the crowd, now they cheer when he asks them. You think I can go across? Oh yes, we've seen it. We know that you can go across. They have no doubt in their minds he can make it. And so he asks them, do you think I could take a wheelbarrow across? And back. And they, they cheer in affirmation. Yes, you could take this wheelbarrow from one side to the other. And then he asks, do you believe that I could wheel a person across in the wheelbarrow? Oh yeah, we, we've seen what you can do. We, we're sure that you can get a person in the wheelbarrow from, from this side to the other across that many hundred foot rope. And so, then, he has their knowledge he has the convictions of the crowd. Now he asks for trust. He looks at the crowd and said, well, hop in. There were no takers. I believe it was his manager had to, had to come and get him. But you see, there is a difference between knowledge and conviction and trust. And saving faith has all three of them. It knows, it believes, and it trusts the Word of the Lord. It's it is entrusting ourselves to Jesus. He is the object of our faith and the effectiveness of faith that doesn't reside in us, but in Him. You know, if someone promises you that they're going to do a job, you've got a job to do and they say, I'll do it. Your confidence in them getting that job done has nothing to do with how strongly you believe it will happen. Whether you have great faith, it will, or little, it doesn't matter. What matters is the person who said they will do the job. Right? That's where your confidence of this job being done comes from, right? And if the person is reliable and capable and they've never let you down before, you have faith the job will get done. Why? Because of the person who is doing the job. But the, the, your faith, the object of your faith, it's not in how strongly you believe or not. It's in the, the one who said He will. When you put your faith in Christ, what it means is, I am trusting in Him and not myself at all. And in that sense, faith, genuine faith, is never introspective. It's never looking within, but it's always looking outward to Christ. We are justified by faith alone in Christ. Now, an objection, or at least a question that comes up here and comes up often is, well, how is faith not a work? If it is something that we do, how can we be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works? Well, the answer is simple. You, uh, the faith that you exercise is your faith, but it is a faith that is given to you in regeneration. I heard an example the other day. Uh, it was an older preacher preaching on this. And he, 
he was talking about laundry detergent. And he remembered, he said, I remember when it came in a big box and you would open the spout and you'd pour out what you needed and you you would do your laundry. And later, it started to come in a different box, kind of like a chest that had a lid and you would open it up. And and I remember we got a box of it and I opened it up and lo and behold, there was a scoop just inside the case. And I thought, he said, I thought there must have been a mistake, so I kept the scoop just in case. But the next time, there was another scoop. The scoop came in the box. And and yes, he used the scoop to scoop out the soap. It was now his scoop. But it was a gift that was given to him. And in the same way, we do exercise faith. And it is our faith. But the faith is a gift that comes by the work of the Spirit. Faith comes with the box of redemption. And it is by this faith that we are justified. Which is the second and indispensable word and the more important of the two justified what does it mean to be justified well it's not like the little ditty you sometimes hear it's just as if i'd never sinned and it's not merely forgiveness it's not less than those things but if that's as far as you go you have not gotten far enough justification is a declaration of righteousness and I don't mean, I don't mean justify in the way it's sometimes used today. It's used today means if you justify something, it means you make excuses for them. That's not what I'm talking about, and that's not what the Bible means when it talks about it. It means to be declared or to be pronounced righteous. And so listen, justification does not mean, does not mean to make you holy, righteous, upright, or good. Justification does not make you any of those things. In the same way, if a judge declares a person to be not guilty, that doesn't make the man any less guilty if he was, and it doesn't make him any more innocent if the verdict was wrong. It is simply a declaration. But justification does not make a person righteous, nor was it ever intended to. Now, it is true that Redemption, the whole scope of it, does do this, or begins to do this, and it secures its completion in glorification. But when you begin to talk about those things, you are not talking about justification anymore. Justification is a pronouncement. It is God declaring that in His judgment, a person is not guilty. That's what justification is in its, maybe its simplest definition. A declaration about a person and their standing before God. And you see this definition in Scripture. Deuteronomy 25.1, we are told of the judge's responsibility. And it was not a judge's responsibility to make people righteous, but to declare whether or not they were. Just as they were to declare the guilty to be guilty, and to declare the innocent to be innocent, but that declaration of guilt, if a judge says guilty, guess what? It does not make the man more guilty. And if he declares a man to be innocent, it does not make the man more righteous, does it? Or consider Proverbs 17.15. It's a very important verse. We'll come back to it. He who justifies the wicked, so that word justifies, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Now, is this passage saying that 
If you know a person who is doing something wicked and you go to them and persuade them not to do that thing and to instead do what is right, is that an abomination before God? Of course not. That would be a commendable thing to convert a wicked man and make him a righteous one. To turn him away from the evil he was intending to do. So justification cannot mean making a person righteous or even changing his or her behavior. It actually has nothing to do with behavior. And you understand that. Justification does not mean to make upright or righteous or to make good or to make holy. I'm stressing this at the risk of being repetitive because this is so important. Justification is a forensic term. It's a legal term. It's a judicial term. It does not have to do with personal holiness. It is not based on the life you live as a Christian or the life you lived before coming to Christ. It is a sovereign assertion of God of His acceptance of those who have faith in Christ. And what's more, it is nothing that is done by us. You know, it's different from faith or even from a generation. In, in faith, we do something. In regeneration, God does something in us. But here, it is only done for us. Completely outside of us. It's a difference between a surgeon and a judge. Surgeon cuts you open and he either puts something in, right? Or he takes something out. That's regeneration. A judge simply gives his judgment and it's done. And if you don't have this clear, there are, there are cracks in it. That's like a leak in a ship. You begin to tamper with justification by faith alone. You're opening up doors to additions and you're preparing to make shipwreck of your faith. And if not yours, then the faith of others who hear you. Justification means to declare righteous. That's what it is. But there is a problem. God is just, and we are not. And listen, there are, there are certain things that God cannot do. Did you know that? Sometimes people hear that and it surprises them. There are things God cannot do. God cannot do whatever He wants. He has less freedom than some people think we do. Scripture says, for example, God cannot lie. Can't lie. Can't do it. Does not have the ability to lie. Scripture teaches that God cannot deny Himself. Does not have the ability to deny Himself. He cannot sin. God cannot manifest darkness. He cannot do anything that is not in accordance with His nature. And because God is just, He can not, He does not have the ability to do anything that is unjust. I mean, how many times do you read in the Old Testament? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God is merciful and God is just. And He will never be one at the expense of the other. And so the problem is, how can He declare anyone to be righteous 
when they are not actually righteous. I mean, God cannot, you, you know this, God cannot simply show you grace and mercy. He is not free to do that. Well, this matters. I fear that half of all Christians, they don't even know the beginning of what God has done for them in Christ. Have you ever thought about this? You know, we've been singing and praising and thanking God for redeeming us, for justifying us. How can He do it? How can God declare a wicked sinner like you and like me to be righteous in His sight? How can God justify the totally unjustifiable without becoming unjust Himself? The first thing you have to understand is is this is alone the prerogative of God. He forbids us from doing it. You cannot justify the wicked without making yourself an enemy of righteousness and an enemy of God. No Christian has the responsibility to justify the wicked. They can't. We don't have the right. We don't have the ability. This is not how we show mercy or how we show grace. It's a disgusting thing in God's sight. We are commanded to love in spite of sin and cover sin and forgive our enemies, but we can not justify the wicked. Yet God does. He does what no man may do. How? What, what enables Him to do this thing? And here the truth of simply declaring a sinner to be righteous. No, God treats me just as if I'd never sinned. It's not enough. God cannot, by decree, say to you, a sinner, you are righteous. You are forgiven. He does not bend the rules. He doesn't make exceptions. He, don't forget this, He is not merciful and gracious at the expense of His justice. You know, sometimes you hear that. God could have been just towards you, but instead He was merciful. That's foolish. Because it's not true. It does damage to the Gospel. It does damage to God. It says God is not just. And so God, He he isn't choosing whether to be merciful or just as if God's mercy were unjust. He cannot do injustice. No, for God to declare the sinner righteous, for God to justify the wicked... Something must be done to satisfy that justice. In 1 John 4.10, we read, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's the same in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, who God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. He needs to demonstrate His righteousness. This is what He is doing by sending Christ. Why does God have to prove that He's righteous? Because He is doing something that on first appearance looks to be unrighteous. Declaring the sinners sinless. To demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time. He didn't just sweep them under the rug and never look at them again. He passed over them, put them in 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 a shelf, and then took them all off when Christ came to deal with them then. So at the present time, He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You understand what this passage says? 
That word propitiation, it means the turning away of wrath by the appeasement of guilt. The turning away of wrath by the satisfying of justice. And that is what Christ is for those who believe. And having sent His Son to be that propitiation, to be that substitute, to be that satisfaction, He demonstrated how He could maintain His justice and justify those who have faith in Christ. It's as if the world were to see someone like us singing songs and praising God for the forgiveness, some notorious sinner. And when the world sees it, they have a complaint. God, You are righteous. God, You're just. And this person, this so-called saint, they have broken Your law. They have said they're not a good person even by our standards. You said the wages of sin is death. God, where is Your justice? How can You call Yourself just and yet show this person mercy? How can You command earthly judges to condemn the wicked and yet here You are forgiving them. Are you fickle? Have you lied? Are you inconsistent? Have you just swept the sin under the rug? How do you answer? Look at the cross. Christ is the answer. He was put forward as the substitute and took the place of His people and taking their place, all of their sin, our sin was imputed to Him. And His righteousness imputed to those who believe. It was imputed, credited, ascribed, assigned, reckoned to our account and is ours by faith. And because of that, because of the work of Christ, now God is merciful and gracious and just when He dispenses those things to His people. He now, because of Christ, He can show mercy and grace and justice in declaring us righteous. So what is declared for us? What does it mean when God says we are righteous? It means we have received to our accounts, have been credited the perfect, undefilable obedience of Christ. And not only does it warrant justification, as if it would just make justification possible, it requires justification and contains it. God cannot but accept into His favor those who are invested with the righteousness of His own Son. And so it is the obedience of Christ that forms the grounds and the basis of our justification. So how can you know that you're justified? How can you know you're accepted? It's not in your assurance of justification. That's not what we're talking about either. Some people say, well, I really believe that I'm justified. And others, I mean, I really believe I'm elect. Who cares? You don't have faith in your election and you don't put your faith in your assurance of justification. Your faith is in the perfection of Christ. And was Christ not perfectly righteous? Was He not perfectly obedient? Was He not in all things pleasing to the Father? Did He not always do the will of His Father? Was He not the perfect atonement? And was He not accepted by the Father? He was all of those things and more. 
And all of that now is yours by faith. And so you do not need to be afraid. I mean, the implications of this are vast and are wonderful. I mean, for one, how many of you approach God like that? Tell me if this is relatable. You go to God, well, I know I, I sinned again. And I said I wouldn't, but I did. God, I hope, I hope you can forgive me. Or you come with your head, head hung low on account of your sin, or, or maybe you just don't know. Can God forgive a wicked sinner like me? How? How can he have fellowship with somebody with a heart as dark as mine? I sin. I sin all the time. Do you ever approach the Lord that way? Have you ever been shocked to read Hebrews chapter 4? Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We read this passage and think, let us then with trepidation draw slyly to the throne of grace, hoping that we might not be noticed and maybe we will receive grace and God will help us once more. How can a sinner who has no merit whatsoever approach the mercy seat of God with boldness? The reason is they have been justified. And when God sees you, He does not see a sinner and He does not see your sin. It's, it's like it doesn't even exist anymore. It's like when you read Hebrews 11, you're reading about all these people and you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're honest. You've read the Old Testament. You think, that's not how I remembered these guys. Abraham, what about this? Samson, what about this? It's as if God says, I've dealt with that. Don't bring those up. That's not how I see them anymore. As far as our relationship goes to God, as far as our relationship is with Him, there is no sin to hinder it. And see, you have every right now to come to God for help, for forgiveness, for mercy in the time of need. Every bit as much a right as Christ the Son. Or 1 John 1.9. It's one of my favorite verses. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. When you read that passage, you expect it to say, He is faithful and merciful to forgive our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. But that's not the word He uses. It's the word just. And you see what He's saying. Because of Christ, when you come confessing your sin, asking for forgiveness, the just thing for God to do is not to condemn, no longer to condemn, but to purify. It is the right thing for God to do. Because of Christ, it is proper, it is appropriate, and righteous for God to show mercy and grace. That's the, that's the degree, the intensity of the, of the redemption of Christ. He has wrought such a work of justification that now for those who are, have faith in Christ, it would be a evil thing for God to not forgive. 
In short, that the cross makes mercy just. It makes showing mercy the just and the right thing for God to do. This is one of those things that really sounds unbelievable, isn't it? This is one of those things, you know, it's, it's like in Isaiah where God says, I don't deal with people like you deal with people. He is merciful and just. And, and let me give an example. And in this example, I've used to death, but I, I just can't find a better one to, to explain it. And so imagine a man who's got no money. And you can quote this to yourselves by now. I just, I keep saying it because I want it to click. And he goes into the coffee shop and he knows they pour out the coffee every 20 minutes. And so he asks the guy behind the counter, instead of pouring it down the drain, can you just pour it into a cup and give it to me? What's the guy behind the counter say? He's, he's a little irritated. And he warns him. He says, all right, I'll give you the coffee that you don't deserve. I'll be gracious to you this one time. Here you go. And the guy's thankful and he says, thank you so much. And off he goes. Next night comes in again. He says, look, I know you're gonna, I know you're gonna pour it out. It's the policy, pour it out every 20 minutes. Well, can you please just spare a cup? What's the guy say behind the cash? He says, didn't I tell you not to come back? I said, I know it's, it's cold, but just please be gracious to me this one more time. You know, this is against the rules. It is not right for me to give you this cup of coffee. I could get in trouble with the company. I'm breaking the rules to do. Yeah, but please just, just stretch the rules. Be merciful this one time. All right. One more time. Gives him the cup. Out he goes. Next night he comes back. Cashier sees him, points his finger, says, not you again. I've told you twice now. Get out of here. I don't want to see you. I don't want to see you again. So the guy, he hangs his head. He's embarrassed now. been embarrassed in front of everybody. And he leaves. He's ashamed. This time there's somebody sitting at a table nearby. And he sees what happens. He gets up and he goes to the cashier. He says, what, what was that all about? He says, that guy comes in here every night looking for coffee. I gave him a couple, but it's against the rules. I can't keep doing this. And so the man comes over and he, the man who comes over, he hands the cashier $500. And he tells him, look, if he comes back here again, this money is for him. So you keep it as a tab and whatever he needs, you draw from this. So, Week later, the guy drags himself back in. He asks the same question, same conversation. Hey, can I have a cup of coffee? This time, the cashier smiles at him, pours him a cup of coffee, puts it in his hands, and says, would you like a donut to go with it? What changed? Nothing about the man coming in for the free coffee, but he had money now was credited or imputed to his account. And because it was imputed to his account, now, because of the mercy of another, because of the labor of another and the works of another, the cashier could give him what he did not deserve and in doing so, not break the rules. Do you understand this? He could be merciful and just. In fact, if the cashier responded like the first two times, and sent the guy away, guess what? Now he would be acting unjustly, wouldn't he? It would be wrong. It would be a wicked and an immoral thing to deny this man what was purchased for him. 
Now do you see what it means to say God is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ? He has obligated Himself to forgive. Now the just, the right thing for God to do is forgive those who come to Him for help in time of trouble. You see how this makes Hebrews 4 a reality? The homeless man didn't approach the cashier with confidence the first two times, did he? Because the first two times, the cashier was merciful and gracious, but he wasn't just. And that's often how we approach God. So, oh man, I, I hope He will accept me. I just, I hope He will be merciful again. I just pray He'll be gracious. Forgive this sin this one more time. I hope He doesn't give me justice. You see how that distorts justification by faith alone? What confidence can we have to come boldly if we think like that? But when you understand that God has made His mercy just, then you will be able to approach the throne confidently for help in times of need. This is the justification God has declared over those who have faith in Christ. When you go to God asking for mercy, you are asking God to do what Christ has made just. So if you're here this morning and you're trusting in in Jesus, you have faith. Maybe it's not a great faith. Maybe it's a little faith, but it's real faith. God has declared you righteous and imputed to you the righteousness of Christ so that you may come boldly before the throne of grace to find help in time of need. If you're here this morning and you're You're lost. You don't know Him. Listen, you have every bit as much a warrant to come to Christ as anybody else. You may come. Permission is granted to you. Do you understand this? It's not, well, I don't, I'm waiting on God. No, God has called you and commanded you to come. Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. John 3, 16, whoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. John 6.37, Matthew 11.28-30, God calls you to come to Him by faith. Acts 17, He commands all people everywhere. That includes all of you here to repent and believe. Put your faith in Christ. Your hope will not be misplaced. Christ is able to save to the uttermost those to come to God through Him. He is willing and able to save those who have faith. And the Lord is merciful and just to forgive those who call upon His name. So don't look at yourself. and Don't look at your own sincerity. Do not look to your good deeds or be discouraged by your bad. But look to Jesus Christ and believe on the One who is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Him. Let's pray. Who is like You, O Lord? forgiving iniquity, and yet not letting the guilt go unpunished. Your ways are perfect, Lord. Who would imagine if it was our idea, Lord, it would be so pathetic. God, send Your perfect Son to die for me. But Lord of love, You sent Him down. Thank You. And I pray, Lord, for all of us here that You would help us to have great confidence in the finished work of Christ. Please, Lord. 
that we would be able to approach your throne with confidence. Not because of anything in us. If we look to us, we will only tremble. But if we look to Christ in His perfections, we can come to you with reverence and confidence, God, knowing that we will be accepted. Not because of us, Lord, we will not be accepted because of our righteous deeds nor rejected because of our sin. But we are always accepted in the Beloved in Him, in Christ. Lord, the throne is always, is always extended to us. The scepter, Lord, is always held out. And so I pray, Lord, that You would give Your people confidence of the justification they have by faith alone. And Lord, I pray that there would be no wicked person here who would use this doctrine to justify their own sin and to make light of sin and use Your grace as a license for evil. But Lord, I know that those indwelled by the Spirit, when they hear this Word, when those who belong to You, Lord, when they hear what You have done for them, it doesn't make them run to sin. It makes them cling more closely to You. It doesn't increase a desire for evil. But, oh Lord, how can we sin against such a wonderful God and a great salvation? Lord, do the work in the hearts of Your people. It's in Your name we pray, and to You we look, and in Your Son we hope. Amen.